Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. So let me unpack this a little bit. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, the church which was leading in Syrio-Palestine, if you like that. And he was martyred, he was killed in 62 AD. And this was a huge loss for the church. Like, he was an awesome person of faith. He, he did a lot. And so the church was without leadership for a little bit. And then what happened is his brothers, Jesus' brothers, James's brothers, stepped up into leadership. They are Joseph, Judah, that's Judas and Jude, and Simon. And they are the brothers who are mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul legitimizes their, their idea of ministry and how they were doing it, which was what they were traveling around Syria Palestine with their wives doing ministry together as family. And Paul's like, yeah, this is awesome. This is great. And this period of history in that space is brutal for the church. They were oppressed and persecuted by both their Jewish brothers until, like, Jerusalem fell, <laughs> but also by the Roman authorities. They had just killed the leader of the church. The, un the understanding that your life is constantly in threat if you're a Christian. They were being attacked from outside the church. But worse still, and not only that, but people had snuck in or people had been convinced the ideas had come into the church and heresy and incorrect belief was threatening the church. It was being attacked from within. And so within all of these different threats, that's what Jude's writing to. With the other missionaries around him, and it's really important to know that this letter worked, <laughs> right? They the church in this era responded positively to this letter. And they took on its challenge, along with all of the other ministry which was happening as well, and put it into practice. So when we follow the ideas of this letter, when we live out of our foundation of faith, it works. There's integrity there. It flows. And we can see this in history because Jude's grandsons would stand before the Roman emperor Domitian, have you say that, who was already killing Jews continually. And towards the end of the first century, they stood before him and they gave testimony and witness to Jesus Christ. They said who they were and they testified to what the realities of Jesus are. And because of that, Domitian released them free of charge and he stopped the persecution under his reign. Not only that, but his grandsons then evangelized Domitian's family and converted them to Christianity. Most notable was his, his niece, which then ended up becoming a martyr. The niece of the Roman emperor became a martyr for the Christian faith because of this message. And we know this from church leaders like Eusebius and others. So let's dive into this message. Let's dive into Jude with the understanding that there's something good here. Yeah. Let's figure out what worked so well and let's ground ourselves in that foundation. So he starts his letter off with a greeting and then mentions that, that he was led away from his original work. He wanted to write about salvation. 
quite common as pastors that we have something which we're working on and then we get pulled away into other matters which are, which are there. And this is to address an urgent issue. There's something wrong. So when we read this message, this, this letter, we need to understand that there's an urgency and an importance. This is not like a sitting back type of letter. This is like crisis mode and a Holy Spirit-led response. And so Jude's rallying cry for those which follow Jesus in a complicated and hostile environment is to call them to contend for the faith. Now, when Jude uses faith, he doesn't use it like how we normally do. We normally talk about belief in Jesus when we think about the faith. That's not really what he's talking about here. It's a different layer. Faith here is the body of truth that stems from God's word, both in the Old Testament scriptures and through the New Testament, as revealed through Jesus being incarnate into the world. It's God's word made flesh and the teaching which Jesus gave us faithfully carried out by the apostles. We use this quite commonly, particularly if you think about the Anglican church, you know, the defender of the faith, that idea of we have the faith as a collective church. That's how Jude is using this word. So he's asking us to contend for the faith, the body of truth, which we have, that is not necessarily ours to own, but is God's truth. And something that we see very quickly in this letter is how interconnected it is with both the Old Testament and its surrounding New Testament works. This contending from the faith sounds quite combative, it's, you know, fighting language, but it actually is quite common throughout the New Testament, in particularly the letters of Paul and Peter. The one which really comes to mind for me is 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 12, which is, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, where you made your good confession in the presence of so many witnesses. That's what this contending, this fighting is about. So how do we contend? It's by following Jesus' example, not in our own strength. And that's what we're really meant to do as Christians. It is a public and practical and open thing for all Christians to do. This is not something which me as a pastor only gets to do. This is a call for the entire church to contend. And that means interacting with those which don't believe the same things as you, who think differently. And when we're in that space, we need to operate with the heart of Christ. And this is why in verse 22, he covers this. He says, Be merciful for those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. And to others, show mercy mixed with fear, the fear of God here. And to do this well, we just have to know our Bibles. We have to know where we're at in that space. So that when we speak, we speak the gospel accurately. Just as Jesus, just as Jude and Jude's grandsons did, in the face of persecution, opposition, and oppression, we need to contend without fear because we know who God is, and we're secure in that. No matter the worldly consequence, but with grace and mercy, we need to contend. So why is this call so urgent? The majority of this letter is is really dealing with that type of stuff. And the issue is because these corrupt teachers had come in and were preaching a different gospel. 
And Jude's response was to say to the church, ground yourself in the foundation of faith and don't stray from it. Don't leave it. This is where we're at. And he makes this point as we went through, I don't, you may have noticed, you may not have, by referencing the Old Testament and other Jewish works of the era. There's about, well, there is, there's 16 direct references to the Old Testament, as well as other allusions from Scripture. So there's a lot in this short letter. And this method is important because we need to recognize that when dealing with different beliefs, we need to stay true to the body of faith, the body of truth that we have in our Scriptures. We deal with different beliefs by being grounded in the Scriptures. That's how we contend for the faith. That's how we stay true. Because it's God's truth, not our own, and we can get stuff wrong. But when we check ourselves, when we stay accountable to the Bible, it's way, way better. And we don't stray into unhelpful territory. And this is done, this staying locked into the Scriptures, this is done personally, but it's also done collectively as a church. This is why we do community things and reading the Bible as, as a church, as a core Christian aspect, because it's so important. And this is where our rock lies with Jesus. And it's through the whole narrative of Scripture, the Old Testament and the New. Sometimes we have our favorite bits. I love reading Paul, but we also need to read the bits which we don't necessarily want to. <laughs> so we don't get confused. We need to be able to be aware and of the context and stay consistent across time. And we check that. This is why Paul warns and it says that, hey, if there's prophecy, check it with the Scriptures. It should all be accountable. It should all make sense. And this is because people make mistakes. I make mistakes. I've made errors up from the pulpit before. And we shouldn't be afraid to, with mercy and the right heart of Christ... <laughs> <laughs> just offer some like scriptural based, hey, is this what you're talking about? We are not infallible. Yeah, but God is. So in that same way, when we look at these Old Testament references, we should be seeing a rich and thorough method which we should copy. And when we read it, particularly in the Greek, I'm told, this book is amazingly eloquent in how it quotes it. I'm not going to go through all of them because there's 16 references directly, but I really encourage you to do that yourself. I'm giving you some homework. I'm giving you a task. Go to the Bible Project video or a really good study Bible and it will have all of the connections. Go and find them in Jude and then go back to where they reference and read their sections so that you follow what's happening. This is from the Jude's book. It's on YouTube. You can go find it. But I'm going to show you one just in really, really shallowness from uh, verse 12 and 13. Um, so in this section, this is 12b, it says, Shepherds who feed only themselves, their clouds without rain, blown along the, by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Works pretty well in English too, I reckon. Um, really, really powerful. It's intense, right? But there's four scriptural references here. Well, three and then one, which I'll get to. 
The first is Ezekiel 34, which is the shepherd's bit, the shepherds which only feed themselves. Then we go to Proverbs 24, which is the clouds blown without rain. Then we'll go to Isaiah 57, which is the chaotic waves, that section down here. Do you see this flow where it's going? And this last bit, the blackest darkness, is actually a quote from 1st Enoch. And he does this, if you remember the flow of the scripture, he does this before he then goes into quoting directly and obviously from 1st Enoch. Do you see the flow of that? One, two, three, and then four? He's setting up what he's doing. It's really amazing. That's why I really want to encourage you to get into uh, that reference activity maybe in your life groups, maybe in your families. So why does he do all of these scriptural references? What is the purpose? Why are we doing all this? And it's for these three main reasons. He wants to allude to and counter the corrupt teachers, which were probably misusing scripture, with scripture itself. How we counter that false belief is with uh, uh, the scriptures by the Spirit. He also wants to warn the faithful that the gospel will always be opposed. The truth will always be like contended with. There will always be opposition that is expected within the Christian life. And the enemy will always try to corrupt it. This is in line with the rest of our scriptures. There's warnings from John, Jesus, Peter, Paul, all talking about this type of stuff. And finally, it's given a way to identify those false beliefs because it'll counter, it will not be the same as our scriptures. Everything's consistent, both by how it's taught and how Jude really wants us to know by how it's lived. It's not just up in our heads. His biggest claim about these false teachers is that we're not living up to the life of Christ. They weren't talking the talk and walking the walk. There was a disconnect for them. And so what is the teachers on about? These Old Testament references are all about rebellion in the heart of hearts, rejecting God's word and authority. And not only that, they want to pull others down with them in their corruption. There's definite this sense of sexual immorality, a rejection of the Christian sexual ethic, and potentially even to the point of sexual abuse. But not only that, they were gluttonous. They were abusing the love feast. They were abusing communion. They were greedy and misusing money. They had an arrogance and integrity problem and were also generally pleasure-seeking. They were using grace as a permission to do whatever they want, misusing Paul. And their character was flawed. They denied the moral implication of the gospel and thus deny Jesus himself. Makes sense that Jude, the brother of James, is like right on about this, right? James is like, you know, if you have faith, you'll do something. And then Jude's like, hey, you guys aren't doing what Jesus is doing. There's a disconnect. Makes complete sense. (laughs) In verse 8, there's this weird thing about dreams and like abusing spiritual uh, beings. And so uh, there's this idea that there's something weird spiritually that these teachers are going on about. 
And so I, I need to explain it because this is sometimes a big, uh, a big hurdle for people when dealing with this book. Jude quotes from two books that we don't know very well. I've mentioned one of them already, First Enoch. And the other one is called The Testament or The Assumption of Moses. And these, these references should not be stumbling blocks for us. This should not be a problem. But sometimes they are. These books are other Jewish writings which were popular at the time. And they obviously had some authority, but they were never put on the same level as Scripture or even the Deuterocanon. They were just contextual references. It's like me when I referenced the, uh, the Beatles song earlier, right? Everyone kind of knows what they're talking about and they can kind of get along with the reference. And we also need to remember that Paul quotes and references to Greek philosophers in Athens. It doesn't mean that all of that type of stuff is good, but you pull out the truth in aspect when it's relevant to the topic. And this is an example of contextualization. It's a big word. But this is what Jesus does, right? He becomes incarnate. He moves into the neighborhood. He becomes flesh so that we can see him and so we can understand him. This is why the Baptist church is on about local church, because we need to have a local expression of who we are in relationship to Jesus. We need to be able to be understood, which means we need to speak the same language. And that's what's happening here. So sometimes people might ask, why even quote from them at all? And a lot of smart people <laughs> tend to think it's this. It's because the heresy, which I mentioned, has to do with spiritual beings. And these quotes from Enoch and, and, uh, and the Testament of Moses have to do with angels, and particularly fallen angels, which we don't often talk about in the Baptist church. <laughs> the Testament of Moses is a supposed argument between Michael, the archangel of God, and the Satan over the deceased body of Moses, over his dead body. They were battling about what to do with him and where to bury him. And so they're having this argument. And in the crescendo... Instead of relying on, on his own power as an archangel, Moses, my, Michael, pardon me, whew, instead points towards the Lord as he says, may the Lord rebuke you. This is consistent with the rest of Scripture, which is helpful for us with Jude. The point is this, when dealing with spiritual evil, we don't actually do the fighting. Right? We're not actually in offense. We might sometimes think we do, but this is what Jude's pointing out. We are not in offense. Think about the armor of God in Ephesians, right? It is mostly defensive. The only offensive thing is the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? God. God is our offense. Not our own power or authority, but God. When we rely on God's power and authority to reject and deal with spiritual evil, we are in line with the Scriptures. But when we rely on our own power or authority, we fail and fall. That's what this reference is on about. We do nothing in our own name. We do everything by the name of Jesus. This is what the apostles taught and lived out. When they did, when they did miracles, they did it in the power and by the name of Christ. They, they actually, I would say, not, they didn't do it themselves. It was the Spirit moving and working, not themselves. So now Enoch. 
Enoch deals, particularly first Enoch, with the rebel host of heaven, which is fallen angels from early Genesis, right? Kind of crazy stuff. But there is this reality of spiritual evil from beings that oppose God, like the Satan, and more. But we need to remember that God has victory. God has won. Yeah, Jesus on the cross has been given all authority and power, and he delegates that through the Holy Spirit to those who who follow him. There is nothing compared to Jesus. And so what should we do with that? Is we shouldn't worry too much, but instead resist them and turn towards God. That's what this Enoch reference is on about. And these weird spiritual aspects that are all brought up and all of these issues with, the, with these early heresies, they have a lot of speculation about what, what those beliefs actually mean because he doesn't actually go in and state it. But as I'm going through all this type of stuff, a lot of people talk about a proto-Gnosticism. And I'll explain what that means. It's a big word. It's this belief that all of flesh and all of creation is bad. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with it. It's this idea that your flesh doesn't matter. You can, you can, it's going to be chucked away. We, all that matters, all that is good, is everything in the spiritual realm. And that our souls are saved to a spiritual place. That's what Gnosticism is. They have this separation between the Old and New Testament. They almost view them like separate gods. And they don't believe that Jesus appeared in flesh. They thought it was more like a hologram type of thing, like he wasn't really there. These secret teachings, which only they have and are, you know, are hidden from the others and you know, the scripture's wrong, that's what was kind of going on here. And all of what I just said there is completely opposed by, by our faith. It is completely inconsistent. God created this world. It is good, and we are meant to be very good, but we have fallen into sin. But that wasn't our intention. And not all spiritual things are good. There is spiritual evil, which we need to be aware of. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is consistent across the Old Testament and the New, and this is not a secret. In fact, it's being proclaimed from the mountaintops and is accessible beyond even ourselves. God's Spirit can move and do a work outside of us. People can just read the Bible. It's there. And it's true, and we can bring people back to that. And so sometimes you might think, Trent, why are we going on about that? Why are we going on about all of this false teaching, all of these ancient problems? That's not around today, is it? I would contend that it is very around today, just maybe in a different name and different form. What's old is new again. Don't you think that the church has had to deal with a rebellious spirit that wants to reject God, his word, and his authority? Don't you think that we have a problem with sex? Don't you think that we have a problem with greed, with gluttony? That we sometimes are arrogant and we have integrity and character issues? Don't you sometimes, when we operate in our weakness, that we, instead of building other people up, we bring them down? Particularly in Australia? Don't, sometimes, when we look around, don't we see around us that people are denying that Jesus was both fully God and fully man? Don't we see 
people dismissing the reality of spiritual evil and even a spiritual realm at all. Doesn't that sometimes seep into the church and we don't think that we're opposed? Don't we sometimes see outside and within the church people challenging the authority of Scripture or even elevating spiritual gifts above their place? Don't we see weird beliefs around angels and the spiritual realm? Don't we see prosperity gospel, signs and wonders, health and wealth, all which has no consistency with the Scripture, no idea with the character of Jesus? We see Christianity combined with other religions, other beliefs, other ideologies. One of my favorite quotes from Joel's sermon was that we need to be wary, we need to reject gospel math. Nothing is added to the gospel, nothing is taken away. There is, no, there is no need to divide the body of Christ and we don't need to multiply anything which we do. We need to reject those things. They are dangerous. They will hurt us. They will lead us into bad spaces. In the world which where the self is king and we make up our own mind, it's important and just as much now as the first readers of Jude that we ground ourselves in the foundation of faith and not stray from that into perilous and dangerous territory that's full of rubbish. Let's stay central on the Bible and Jesus. Finally, Jude's like last big call is a call to pray a call to prayer. He calls for us to build ourselves up on the foundation of faith because it's the Holy Spirit that gives us our power. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are called to walk in step with the Spirit. We have the very power of God within us, accessible. This is why Jesus rose to the right hand of the Father, so that the Spirit could come to us. We have access, and yet we do not access it. This reminds me of a couple of quotes from our previous uh, pastor, Lee. He spoke about that prayer is the engine room of faith, that we run by prayer constantly. It's not something we can just flick off and on. Nick mentions a couple of times that it's weird to say as a Christian that you're not a prayerful person because we're we're called to be living in prayer. And it's in this way that we have integrity in our faith, that if we truly believe that we have the Holy Spirit, we would turn to him because he's the one who can actually do stuff about our problems. So often we are weak I often feel like that God is dragging me along, kicking and screaming. (laughs) I'm constantly fighting with with my own battles. It's out of sin and other stuff. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we have victory. So we need to turn to God in prayer. We need to access that to do what we're called to do. And it's really helpful, I think, because Jude's message is very practical. The so what for us is really easy. Let's not forget it. When we ground ourselves in faith, it has these really obvious outworking steps. We will obviously, if we're grounded in our belief, we'll contend for those beliefs with others around us. 
We will not stray from them because we'll know what the truth is. And we will be constantly in prayer. We will contend we don't stray and we will pray. And this is my challenge for us. This is my challenge for you this morning. Where is that at for you? Are there spaces where you're not contending, where you're hiding away your faith, where you're not living with integrity, where you're not being open and accountable to what God is saying? Are there spaces where we've strayed from the truth? Are there spaces where we, where we have been moved away? I think about myself like 10 years ago. I didn't think there was a reality of evil. Where is that for you? Is it potentially that we are not in step with the Spirit, that we're not accessing God in prayer? That we do it, you know, maybe when we come to church, maybe when we say grace, maybe around our bedtimes as a bit of a throwaway line, but we're not constantly doing that. Is your life steeped in prayer? Are we accessing the Spirit? And this shouldn't be all just talk for us. This should be real and practical, and it should be evident for us in the church and in our lives as Christians. Do you guys want to come up? Um, in saying that, in saying that it, is, it shouldn't just be talk and words, I'm going to encourage us to respond. We're going to enter a time of response. We're going to sing. We're going to worship together. We're going to sing in Christ alone. But in the midst of that space, we're going to pause, and I'm going to ask us to enter a space of prayer. We just spoke about prayer. Let's enter that space now. Where is God pointing at you in your hearts? Where is, where is the challenge for you this morning? It could be something which I haven't even mentioned, but where is God and his spirit at work in you? Where are you, where are you connected? So I'm going to ask us to, in that moments of where we just have music behind us, after we sing, to ask that of ourselves. And then we'll come back and we'll sing the song in full gusto, recognizing what the Spirit has done. May we know who Christ is. May we know the foundation of faith. And may we act out of that. May we contend. Don't stray. May we pray. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.